1: Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast, Remembering the Handover. The handover of Dublin Castle and its administration to the Provincial Government of Ireland on the 16th of January 1922 happened 100 years ago this month. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. In making this podcast, I selected three recordings from our Irish Life and Lore Archive. Colonel Sean Clancy, a volunteer who was in Dublin Castle that morning. John Bellingham, the son of Captain Stewart Bellingham, who was stationed in Dublin Castle from 1917 until the handover. And Michael Finucane, one of the first civil servants to join the administration when the British surrendered Dublin Castle and its administration to the newly formed Provincial Government of Ireland. So let's get started. In this first clip, Sean Clancy recalls here the handover of Dublin Castle on the 16th of January 1922. Later that month, on the 31st of January, he also recalls the ceremonial event that took place at Beggar's Bush Barracks. I was still only, only an
3: ordinary volunteer. The company, for some reason or other, we were detailed to go to the castle that morning that the uh, handover was taking place. And I remember, well, there, were, there was, was up to 50 or 60 of us. And it was a big occasion for the British, of course. The Lord Lieutenant was there somewhere in the background, Lord Fitzhallen. Exactly. It was a very historic day, and there was a company of the volunteers in uniform to the first... Company uh, in, in uniform, uh, and they were waiting outside in Parliament Street. And eventually they got some signal to move into the lower castle yard, and uh, they marched in with Daly in charge. And then, of course, there was a lot of excitement to hand over bugles or sounding and everything else. And the, the British Army, there were several units of them, in, mostly in the upper castle yard, which is bigger than the lower one. And uh, they eventually marched out, bands playing and flags flying and all that. And uh, the the Irish company marched in and I think they met each other
1: and saluted each other. And after the handover, Sean Clancy took up a position in Portobello Barracks as staff member of Michael Collins. And we'll return to that story later in the podcast. Captain Stuart Bellingham was stationed in Dublin Castle since 1917. He was there the morning of the handover and he also was involved in the signing off of British guns to the provincial government of Ireland. This is a fascinating story and is told here by his son John Bellingham.
0: Finally, at the handover, uh, at the treaty, my father was still in. In uh, Dublin Castle, and um, the, the the British handed over to the new Free State army uh, the arsenal, including their rifles, of course, and it's quite possible that Michael Collins would have been there, uh, in charge of the of the of the um, the Irish army that was receiving them, because. Uh, after, the, the, after the treaty, the British army was, was withdrawn, of course, from from the Republic. Well, it wasn't the Republic then, from, I suppose, the Free State. And um, so naturally, all the serving British, British officers left at the same time. And um, my father had been ADC to General McCready, and General McCready was appointed governor of Gibraltar. And so he took... My father with him as as he's as ADC, and then he, my father was nominated military attaché in Tangiers. Tangiers being an international port at the time, with, a, a, I think a five five countries were involved in the in the governing Tangiers, and the Rif War had broken out. the the, the Rif were the um, were the Berber tribe who lived in the Rif Mountains along the border between Spanish Morocco and French Morocco. And they rose in revolt against the Spaniards, and they were successful, and they, 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 drove the, they pretty well drove the Spaniards into the sea. But of course, there was a rising on the French side as well, and this didn't suit the French, so the, the, the French attacked the, 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 um, the Riff from, from the rear. And um, in the process of that, they captured a whole lot of rifles, and the, um, my father's counterpart, the French military attaché came to him very accusingly and said, ''Ah, we've discovered perfidious Albion at it again. Um, um, Britain has been arming um, the RIF rebels against us.'' So my father said, ''I don't think so. It's not British policy that I've ever heard of.'' And, and he said, ''Well, look. Look at all these Lee-Enfield rifles. Um, are they not British?'' So my father said, ''Well, he keep investigate the matter.'' But he said, ''It's quite simple. You've just got to give me the, the numbers.'' of the rifles, and we could trace them back from Woolwich, uh, where they would have been issued. And so he, he sent the numbers back to London, and then duly they followed the trace down from Woolwich that they had been um, in, in Ireland, and they, they followed them down to Dublin Castle, and whose signature was on the the, 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 the paper that handed them over to the Free State Army but Captain A.S. Bellingham. So um, uh, 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 he <laughs> naturally he, he and his French counterpart um, had a bit of a laugh about that, but what had happened was that um, the, the, these were part of the consignment that the British had handed over to Michael Collins's forces, but they, they were somewhat out of date. They were actually had been used in the Boer War, and so what they had in Dublin were the, were the rather uh, were, were the um, were the, really the obsolete stock. And uh, I think Michael Collins must have found them obsolete too, because the the Free State Army didn't keep them long, and they were sold to a Belgian arms dealer who'd sold them on to the to the riff rebels
1: and Later in this podcast, John Bellingham will recall his father's involvement in the war of independence leading up to the handover. Michael Finucane, who was born in nineteen o three in North Kerry, joined the newly formed Irish Civil service. And in this clip, he provides a fascinating first hand account of the transition of government as events unfolded after the handover of Dublin Castle.
4: On the 16th of January 1922, I think the keys of the Castle of the Dublin were handed to Michael Collins. And he could tell us the first date of the Realty Shaddock at Naharan and the provisional government of Ireland. And they started setting up government. And there were 20,000 British civil servants here at the time, and they ran the country really. And there were uh, there were a remarkable number of people uh, that, at that time there were 20,000. Most of them post office, of course, and there were besides that so only few departments at the time, and mo- mostly worked in the castle. And uh, it was interesting commerce was a big department, it had most of them. And you had finance, and you had uh, uh, local government, and you had uh, the other transporters well, no, that not in opposite industry, and commerce. but most of the departments in industry and commerce. And I when staff, and held the usual interviews and exams. For staff and I happened to be
1: there at the right time in the right college and got in. <laughs> Simple as that. And here, Michael recalls at the time how many people had entered for the civil service job, but only twenty people were accepted. And he was one of the lucky ones who got into Dublin Castle in February 1923. He also recalls the lack of unemployment around the country at that time. I, I went up to Dublin the
4: 2nd of uh, February 1923. 20, 23, 23, uh, and uh, the the shot and the hair, as they call it, uh, uh, started about... Uh, 1922, 1922 I was a clerical officer and uh, there was promotion then the only way you get promotion to clerical officer was during the executive exam and everybody, everybody below the executive grade thousands, it was really did the, this exam and I called about 20 and I was, I was the 15th in the exam <laughs> that's simple as that now, there uh, was an unprime nobody knows, it was at least 30%, at least that Nobody had jobs. I said, the farmers in our farm there was eight boys, my father and mother working, and that a man, a woman, employed. Anybody could come along and could work, and everybody worked in 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 agriculture. If the whole country was employed, and there was no nobody knew the but the man and the woman working in the land, there was no not he was regarded as unemployed at all. You see, I was dealing with the unemployed. That's what I was dealing with. There was no at all. There was no at all, whatever. There was what they call unemployment insurance. You insured yourself against unemployment. You paid you paid one and a penny a week, and the employer paid one and eleven pence. That came to three shillings. If you had twenty-six of those in succession, you see, you could if you became unemployed, then you 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 got unemployment insurance. But it's insurance, insurance of the world. Insurance is the dominating world. But
1: in you have to be insured. no non in people didn't do that. Oh, they didn't insure they, themselves.
4: They were, they were indelible to do that. There were only certain categories of people. I'd say the man of the land didn't get it. only certain categories of people were, had even that privilege. And that was the British law. I'm quoting the British law. The British, usually after yeah, the First Great War, the British introduced
1: that, you see. Later in the podcast, we'll return again to Michael Finucane and his story about the newly formed civil service of Ireland, and listen more to his fascinating stories. Returning again now to Sean Clancy, he was born in County Clare in 1901. He went to Dublin in 1919 to join the Volunteers and he fought in the War of Independence. He joined the Irish Republican Army after the handover at Dublin Castle and he started his army career in Portobello Barracks, working on Michael Collins's staff. When the Civil War started in June of 1922,
3: Collins had been head of the government, and then for some reason the government decided that he'd be appointed Commander-in-Chief. And so that's now in June, and he came in to, at that time when the Civil War started, and he took up a, a, a building there as commander in chief, and I happened to be on his staff. And uh, he was there. He was there only a couple of months ago, you know. He entered the war. The civil war started in June, and he was killed in August.
1: So he was only a couple of
3: months there, you know.
1: He was involved in recruiting for a national army, sometimes unofficially referred to as the Free State Army.
3: Well, I had a very junior position as a lieutenant in the <laughs> beginning, and uh, I s- spent about six months in Portobello, and I got uneasy in myself, and I applied for a transfer down to my native county of Clare. Well, I was at a staff job. I I, I was on records. I was, uh, there were a lot of uh, entries into the army, you know. Uh, from all over the country, and the, the farms are coming up, and we were checking the farms. I didn't know what the hell what we were doing, but um, that's how oh, it was. Very monotonous. And it didn't appeal to me, but I applied to be sent down to my own county of Clare, and down I went.
1: So just a very short time. Very short time. But they were very. Those couple of months were very important.
3: They were indeed. They were indeed. Personally, I think he should never have gone down to the Cork or Kerry, uh, he'd enough to do uh, in Dublin, organising a new army and everything like that. But, it was, he was anxious to get down to his native West Cork. And there was a lot of enlistment in the army and, uh, you know, new appointments and everything else. And uh, However, I suppose he was advised to go down there and he was anxious to meet old friends, I suppose, too.
1: He recalls the demobilisation at the end of the Civil War and he also remembers uh, the time that he was down in Kerry and paying the troops at the end of the Civil War.
3: There was a reorganisation when the Civil War ended uh, and uh, I I moved to Limerick City and uh, apparently there was a lot of demobilisation of officers and and the the, the Kerry brigade this they, they suffered more than most i think to, the more, the bulk of them Dublin men you know came down with paddy Daly and, and his and du- arrives in phoenix du- and yeah. Dublin guards. and uh, i think the bulk of them were demobilized in nineteen twenty four civil war ended and units were being disbanded and uh, officers uh, disposed of so I, it was my first time ever in Kerry, and uh, I had a small escort and a, a, a saloon car, but uh, I found it very hard to get get the help of officers. They were all gone. They were all did, uh, gone away, back to Dublin, most of them. But uh, however I managed to get through on the end. I had to draw money from the bank every morning, and the were was all, all over Kerry, of course, down as far as Kenmere and Killarney and everywhere else. But over I, I spent a couple of weeks in Kerry uh, was it
1: still a hot spot at the time was a
3: hot spot, and there were some ambushes, but the, the civil war had ended, and I did the job anyhow
1: and now we return to John Bellingham and his memories of what his father told him about the War of Independence and the handover. John was born at his family's home in 1929 in Houghton County, Dublin. His father, Stuart Bellingham, joined the Royal Artillery Regiment and was commissioned at the beginning of World War I. And during the Battle of the Somme, he was gassed in the trenches. He was then sent back to Ireland... And he took up a position as a staff member in, the, in Dublin Castle. And from 1917 to 1922, he was there. In 1917, he was back. He was in Dublin Castle. And, yes. And then, of course, you had the, the, the aftermath. You had the War of Independence. And you had. Uh, he never referred to it as that. It was just. And nobody did, really, in those days. It was only
0: schoolmasters who talked about that. It, it was just known as the Troubles. I never heard the expression "War of Independence" and, 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 and until much later in life. People always referred yeah. to the Troubles, yeah. nothing nothing else. The point of view of, of uh, uh, anyone who'd, who'd been in the, in, in, in the army uh, fighting the Germans was that um, you know this was this was a rebellion, a rather mis- misguided rebellion, and it had to be dealt with. Uh, he always got on very well with the locals. I mean, there was nothing personal about it. But they, but he he obviously wouldn't have agreed with the with the movement.
1: Mm. And although John's father, Captain Stuart Bellingham, accepted the handover, John, his son, had his own preference to what the Irish flag should be. But your uh, understanding of the part he played when when the, the British flag came down, the Irish flag went up. You know, he,
0: he, he, well, he was a realist. Hmm. I mean, he accepted it. He, he accepted that. Um, personally, I, I mean, I prefer the cross of St. Patrick, although people say that it's not rarely and that sort of thing, to the tricolor. I mean, I always say, I, I'm not always, always suspicious of tricolors because they're revolutionary. I mean, after our tricolor was brought over by Francis Mar from France in in eighteen forty eight. And the French tricolor, um, after all, was the flag of the revolutionaries, and the Italian tricolor was was the flag of the of the revolutionaries. Uh, the House of Savoy merely put their crest on it, but then that's been taken off now. I think tricolors t- tend to be the, the banners of 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 revolutionaries, whereas a cross uh, goes back to the Middle Ages. Green, white, and gold is what the nationalists use in the north because they find orange rather difficult to, to digest. So they, they paint their curbs, uh, I mean, whereas the Ulysses have red, white, and blue, they paint theirs uh, green, white, and papal gold, rather than orange.
1: Captain Stuart Bellingham was aide de camp to Lord French and saved his life at the Battle of Ashtown. John talks about what happened that day and the outcome of the War of Independence.
0: He was involved with the um, the the uh, Ashtown ambush. Oh yes, because through the Military History Society, years later, which my father joined, um, he he was very interested, um, and they arranged for him to meet or whoever it was who mm-hmm. who, who had organised the ambush, and it, it m- my father, uh, who was responsible for the viceroy's, that was Lord French, for the viceroy's security. Um, one of the things he'd done was to um, put Lord French in a car which didn't look like the official car. And there was somebody else in, in what was obviously the official car. So it was the official car that drew most of the fire. Uh, uh, and the, 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 the car that was, that Lord French was travelling in was, was, was hardly shot up at all. And um, so uh, he was delighted to meet, I think it was Dan Breen... Because I remember he told me that they 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 would had a discussion and they, Dan Breen told him his side of the story and how he'd planned the ambush and my father told him how he'd how he'd really thwarted the 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 the, the desired effect of the of the um, uh, of the ambush and they 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 had a great time comparing notes and thinking thinking how it could have been how each side could have done it better
1: he was a very interested in military matters and, yes. and, and he was a technician in that sense in, in, yes. in, in, in how, how, how things were, were fought and won. He must have commented on the fact that they, 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 the, the type of warfare that went on during after 1916 right up to, to the Civil War time was, was, uh, was a unique way of, of, um, of I suppose, defeating... Um, the, uh, the 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 British at the time because it, it it seemed almost an impossible task. Well, they didn't defeat the British actually,
0: uh, the, because when the treaty was signed, the 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 IRA were exhausted, and um, one of the reasons why they went over to to negotiate was that they knew uh, that, that they couldn't hold out any longer. They had been defeated. The British army had wo- actually won, but. Um, Lloyd George realised that um, the the, the rebellion could be suppressed now and and that would be that but there was still a great deal there would be smouldering discontent Uh, and the main problems would not be solved and it would break out again later but to present um, the War of Independence as a military victory of the Irish over the British is not true Um, uh, it it was a political decision of, of Lord George uh, mm. to, 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 you know, to give them what they wanted. And that, of course, is why uh, um, mm. de Valera uh, rather duplicitously stayed behind and did not accompany the, 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 the delegation. He knew they had to sign, and he knew that he was not going to accept uh, what they'd signed, and hence the story of Michael Collins.
1: And finally, I asked John Bellingham if his father, Captain Stuart Bellingham, accepted the formation of the Free State and continued to live in this country, or did he always see England as the motherland?
0: Well, he was, as I say, he was a realist. I mean, um, he, he accepted the fait accompli that we had the Irish Free State with his tricolor, and uh, um, he lived here, he paid his. Taxes obviously to the to the Irish the Irish Revenue, and um, he was a retired British Army officer on the reserve, but he didn't see any incompatibility about that. Uh, he, like a lot of other people, um, kept his British passport, which after all all Irish people had um, issuing the green Irish passport came much later, and so he saw no reason to change his passport. But uh, when it came to be my turn to ha- to have a passport, I had an, I have an Irish passport, and um, it's quite normal. I mean, uh, I, I'm a citizen. I'm, a, I'm an Irish citizen, and uh, uh, I think, like most people of my my background, as I said before, they consider themselves Irish, even if some of their compatriots would not consider them Irish.
1: But I think you still see England as the mainland.
0: Um, well, I don't think I do. I consider France the mainland. Um, uh, I mean, my my um, my parents, uh, I mean, my, my mother particularly, was, was uh, uh, absolutely insisted that we learn French and that sort of thing because she said uh, Great Britain is an island and Ireland is doubly an island. And, um, I mean, you know, that famous um, insularity of the uh, uh, of the English, I think it was said on the BBC News once, um, the continent is isolated by a fog in the Channel.
1: And in this final segment, we return to Michael Finucane's fascinating story about the newly formed Irish civil service. And his position uh, in industry and commerce was working on the unemployment uh, section and he explains very clearly that they were doing exactly what the British were doing at the beginning.
4: Now, what happened was we were carrying out exactly what the British were doing, you see. And uh, uh, And what happened was the art of that, that was done locally on unemployment exchanges throughout the country, on unemployment exchange, you might have had them, but in, in London there was a special section, a special room, a special house, and they were all Irish, were in there, were dealing with, they were dealing with this insurance, the same as I was, they were all transferred over to Dublin Castle. They were all censored, and I joined them. That was my job. I joined the crowd who had already been carrying out the same duties in London. Now do you follow me? I
1: do, indeed. Uh, but no, it, it no. still left you with a, a, an awful difficult job here in Ireland. Oh, time. sure,
4: it was a difficult job. I mean, there's no way there. We couldn't contemplate. But anyhow, I, that was my first job. And um, I was, uh, you had uh, 750. You had to, we had to audit it. These huh? were all dealt with local, all over the country. These were payments. These were dockets showing the payment made to each individual who was unemployed, you know. These were dockets. And we had to audit them. And, and see, how they were did right? you cope? Oh, well, we coped all right. Let's no bother because uh, the very first day I was there the court, you know. But, but uh, these, there were a big number. But the, what I'm saying is, I was in industry in commerce, but there was no industry whatever. you see. Uh, and I you know, didn't want to apply. They were getting a card one day from the post from the west of Ireland, and it said... Uh, I'm roaring with the hunger. <laughs> I'm roaring with the hunger. That is written. Uh, that's all, and the whole postcard was that, you know I every mean, lady was there, and people were roaring with the hunger.
1: But government in the, in the early days must have been uh, a very walking on a tightrope because you 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 still had when you were there first you still had the unrest of the civil war and, yeah. and you had. Well,
4: that didn't bother so much now. The biggest trouble there now, I'll give you an idea of what it was. In Innocent Commerce that time, the man in charge, uh, Joe McGrath was the man, the, the minister. Joe McGrath. Joe McGrath had been, uh, um, uh, Joe McGrath had been uh, Secretary Jim Larkin, that was his background, at three pound a week. And he fought in 1916, he was only 16, and uh, he married and he was a real... Uh, low, low level stratum of society in Dublin. Now. A respectable man, i not told nothing. I know, him. but he came out of a very poor out, background. He, he did, a poor background. And now, what happened? Uh, the man in charge of industry and commerce, who was in charge of us and a very good man he was, was Gordon Campbell. Gordon Campbell was son of Lord Glenavy, who was Carson's right hand man, <laughs> At the other side of the scale, son of Lord Carson, of Lord Glenavy. Who was, if you read the history of the time, you know, he was the biggest man up there, and then the other side. So you, you
1: had these two people working together you, at the Yes, yeah. he,
4: he was there, yeah. and he was a graduate of, uh, Queen, of uh, Cambridge University, and he was a, a big man, and uh, he's uh, he, he came in there, and, you know, and, and oh, he was in the British civil service, and stayed, he stayed in Ireland, you see. Uh, they, all, they all had been here, That 20,000, there was no many thousands in this place, they were all over the place. But uh, Daniel Gordon-Campbell was the boss, and he was God Gordon-Campbell in Slanton you wouldn't have no, no mistake. Was, and the second man was R.C. Ferguson. I still remember his name, R. C., a Queen's University of Belfast, a graduate of that place, a Protestant and an Irishman. And down the line, to me, the, my major boss uh, at one stage there was B.J. Gwynne, uh, B.J. Gwyn, whose brother was provost at Trinity College. And B.J. Gwynne was a grandson of William Smith O'Brien. Oh my you
1: know? goodness, so the connections were, were quite, and, quite and,
4: interesting. And, and, and he, was in, in the, he was fought in the Boer War, Captain B.J. Gwynne. In 1918, he was asked to take us to sign uh, a note of allegiance to the King of England as a civil servant. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He was the son of a grandson of William Smith O'Brien. That's his way and uh, he was he was sacked. He was sacked. But he came back then under our government. And he was a Protestant, of course, you know. And that's the kind of fellows you had. But B.J. Gwynn was my and he was a deaf as a beetle. And his brothers were deaf and they to to meeting where they had all tubes and they were talking about tubes. <laughs> and he came to he came in to to talk to me and he's a real gentleman, you know he handled this and nobody knew what to do with a big long tube, you know. It you, stuck you in you his ear. You just <laughs> out.
1: And in those early days, Michael moved quickly up the ladder because of his athletic abilities.
4: Later on, later on, uh, I spent a short time at the later on. There was a man in the, in the industry in Congress who would be rugby international and he was very keen in sports and all sportsmen. And he heard that I was in the department. He had seen. In the meantime, I didn't go into it. I was an, an athlete and won prizes. Of my name was in the paper, you see. And he wanted anybody that was any athletic to be used to be section. I went to him. Oh, well, he look. He was a one for the boxes and football, yes. soccer players and all kinds of fellas there. You see, and we had fun. But but anyhow, that's that's why that is. But
1: I stayed there for a time. And in this final clip, Michael talks about. Another interesting name, Nancy Wise Power. She was head of the intelligence section in industry and commerce.
4: One short time I was sent in, into in a section called intelligence section, in this. and there were crowded for of sitting down on the table, you see. Nancy DePierre, who was a famous person outside, apparently I know she was in charge of us. But we were to read documents, read papers, read, now, uh, read uh, magazines and papers, uh, see if you could come up with any idea about industry. <laughs> a lot from the country knew nothing. And uh, there was a E.J. E. Reardon, E.J. Reardon. E.J. He's a scientist, E.J. And uh, he had written a book on Irish industry, see. And he was a man in mm-hmm. an industry. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. No, no, no. no clue. They hadn't a clue what to do, you know.
1: We have come to the end of this very special podcast on the handover of Dublin Castle and its administration to the Provincial Government of Ireland. All three full-length interviews, well over an hour in duration, are all worth listening to, and they're available on our website, and that's www.irishlifeandlore.com, and there If you feel like subscribing to us, you can do so too. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week.
2: Hold up.